This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Brian O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti, and today I'm sitting down with comics creator Tyler Crook to talk about his new project, The Lonesome Hunters, a four-issue supernatural fantasy miniseries from Dark Horse Comics. Thanks for joining me today, Tyler. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, well, it's a real pleasure getting you on the show. I'm a big fan of your work on Harrow County. You have a, a unique artistic style, which we can get to in a minute. Uh, let's start with the basics. What is The Lonesome Hunters about? The Lonesome Hunters is about, um, man, you'd think I would have my spiel down a little bit better by now, but it's about <laughs> um, it's about uh, an old man who was given a magical sword when he was a young man that sort of uh, led to him losing um, all the things that were important to him. And, uh, and he has gone into hiding and our story picks up about a hundred years later. He's still alive. This magic sword has kept him alive, you know, and relatively healthy in that time. And um, he meets a young woman named Lupe, and they uh, basically have to confront some monsters that have attacked their um, their apartment building. And then together they end up starting on a on an adventure to sort of uh, find, you know, try to try to find what they're missing in their life and also, you know, deal with these monsters that are after them. So Howard, the, the older principal character, he's been in hiding for a long time, hiding from life, hiding from his own destiny. So what emotional beats were you trying to go for with the character? Um, you know, I think the, um, the, the main thing in the first issue is really establishing who these people are and what, um, what they're going through. And I think both Howard and Lupe are um, extremely lonely people. They're both sort of stuck in these situations that um, they don't feel like they have a lot of control over and they don't have a way out. And so I think when they meet each other, they both see this opportunity to like go in a different direction than they have been going for better or worse. Okay. Yeah, um, Lupe is kind of a, an unlikely sidekick, you know, thrown into the, the mix of battling these supernatural forces in the book. And I thought it was an interesting choice to throw two complete strangers kind of together with these vast age differences. So why? Um, <laughs> I think the, the original inspiration for that was probably had a lot to do with, um, well, when I had first conceived this book, uh, it was a long time ago. I first started thinking about the story about 10 years ago. And um, at the time I was sort of just, I had just gone full-time being a comic book artist and 
was going around and meeting a lot of, you know, other cartoonists. And um, I was 35 when I got my first book published. And so a lot of the people, a lot of my peers work-wise were about 10 years younger than me, you know? So I was like hanging out with a lot of people that were like sort of the next generation um, younger than me. And I think that got me thinking a lot about um, just sort of inter intergenerational ways of cooperating and finding, you know, mutual aid to, to make your way through life. And, you know, and they also, that was a time when I had moved um, back to Oregon, um, partially so I could be close to my parents. So I was able to spend a lot more time with them and was thinking more about intergenerational um, dynamics and stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely sympathetic to being the, the guy in the 40s with the youngins. So I find myself there all the time. So, yeah. well, with respect to the supernatural elements in the story, you know, you're in Oregon and we recently moved from the Pacific Northwest. So without throwing out too many spoilers or anything, the, the representation of some of them is somewhat totemic. So it, it like echoed some of those things you would see from, you know, Native American um, artwork from the Pacific Northwest. So when you were populating the world, you know, what were you mining visually? Um, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that as being sort of like a, but yeah, it does sort of, there's some sort of emulation of totem pole kind of imagery. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that was not really intentional, I don't think. Um, the, uh, the notion with the animal, like with the, with the monsters is that they're, um, well, the main, the main antagonist is um, a group of magpies, uh, which might sound a little funny to people without, before reading it, but um, it makes sense in the book. And they, um, but they're sort of based on a lot of reading that I was doing about, um, you know, of native religion or native American religion and folklore stories. And so much of their stories, um, well, I think particularly, um, I was interested in, uh, oh man, what's the name of the tribe? Uh, it will come to me. But they have, they have a bunch of stories, you know, where it's like uh, a deer will take the form of a person and do something and then they turn back into a deer and run off or, you know, like these animals taking the forms of humans and, um, and either being like, you know, antagonists or protagonists in a story that way. And I, I found that really um, appealing, especially as sort of an animal lover myself. Like I love anthropomorphizing animals and, and giving them, uh, you know, human motivations and, and, and stuff like that. And so that was sort of, my idea was sort of like thinking about why these magpies might be attracted to shiny things. Um, and how that might be, like what, what that motivation might lead to. And so what I came up with was that these magpies want shiny things to do magic and that they have, um, you know, collections that give them uh, power. And so when something gets stolen from these magpies, they have to try to get it back. And that's sort of the, what starts the, the adventure. Yeah, I don't know if people know the background between magpies, crows, you know, that ravens that that whole you know species subspecies bird but um when we were up there in washington we would leave out trinkets and there were you know vast flocks of of crows that would fly over kind of every night in the summer and they would actually leave us other stuff so yeah i've heard um there's some guy i saw 
online talking about he had made a vending machine where he had trained the local crows to pick up garbage. And when they dropped the garbage into this trash can, it would release seeds for him, like give him a little snack so they could like clean up the neighborhood and get a little treat for themselves. Wow, that's super ambitious. Yeah, yeah, no, that's amazing. Yeah, and all those, you know, all those birds are always so, um, you know, every time I read more about birds, more like it really seems like uh, people have underestimated their intelligence for, for forever. Like they're highly intelligent and, and, and fascinating creatures. Oh, absolutely. Well, it, it's commonplace to ask about inspirations, but I'm going to take this in a little bit of a different direction. What was your true north here? What did you most want to leave the reader with? That's a good question. I don't know. Fair enough. <laughs> I guess like what I want, what I want from what I want from any story is that I want something that um, so I guess I want stories that make people feel less alone. Like I like stories that explore um, sort of difficult topics in ways that um, even if they don't necessarily provide the reader with like, oh, here's a, a framework to like, for you personally to deal with this difficult topic. If, if it's just sort of a, a true and honest exploration of difficult topics, I think it can make, um, at least when I read those stories, I feel like, you know, part of the human experience, you know, like we're all in this together. And, and I really enjoy that, um, that, that feeling. In fact, a lot of the, the inspiration for the title, The Lonesome Hunters, um, came from uh, my favorite novel, which is The Heart is a Lonesome Hunter, or The Heart is a Lonely Hunter okay. uh, by Carson McCullers. And that book is just an amazing, like, uh, book as far as um, its structure, because it has like, you know, it has a half a dozen uh, main characters and they're all exploring their own loneliness in their own specific way. And so like the whole book ends up being this meditation on loneliness that doesn't, you know, at the end doesn't come out with everyone being like, oh, now we're not lonely anymore. <laughs> but the that exploration of it sort of when you get to the end, you're like, oh, I feel I have I feel like connected to these characters in a way that um, is meaningful to me. Like, I, don't, I feel like I'm not necessarily alone. Yeah, and, well, and, and it was fascinating, um, kind of the sword element itself. I mean, it's how many swords are in comic books, right? Um, but this one is different uh, in its attachment to Henry's family. It's an heirloom of sorts. So, mm -hmm. you know, what what kind of made you want to pull a sword, which, you know, functionally in, in a modern world is going to stick out? Because, I mean, at this point, what I'm seeing from the story is it's placed mostly in the modern world, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's this big old fat sword, too, you know, like almost a rune sword. So, yeah, the sword. Um, yeah, man, you know, it's so funny because, like I said earlier, like I've, I've been thinking about the story for at least 10 years. And so I don't even remember where half of the ideas originated from. Um, like I knew that there was going to be a sword for a long, long time. And um, that that is in a lot of ways, that's like the main MacGuffin to move the story forward is like, right. um, is the sword. And the, uh, but the, 
the idea of the sword, the story about the sword is going to come out, you know, in the in the larger series as we come along. But it's basically, um, you know, some of the characters will refer to it as the first sword because it is so it's so much older than um, than Howard. Um, and we're going to find out. Okay, that. read and see. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil too much. No, that, that's good. That's good. So, well, you've been a collaborator mostly focused on generating the artwork um, before, although after interviewing Kel about the Stone King, it sounded like you were kind of also a co-writer conceptually with that too. You know, yeah. what made you want to tackle this one all on your own? Um, you know, there's a lot of things. I've, I've When I got into comics, I wanted to, you know, write and draw my own stuff. And um, I found it was just much easier to just draw stuff and work with writers like who were established. You know, I worked with some amazing uh, writers, John Arcudi and Cullen Bunn and um, uh, Jeff Lemire in particular, like those three have been really great collaborators for me. And, um, but you know, there's, sorry about that. <laughs> all good. There's, um, there's a lot, um, you know, there's just stories that I wanted to tell. And um, I sort of got to a point uh, about a year before the pandemic started where I was like, you know, I need to, I need to get cracking on this now because, um, you know, I'm not going to live forever. So I need to <laughs> like do the things. That I and, you know, and there's a lot of, um, there's a, there's a lot in the in the comic book industry, and I think in the publishing industry in general, there is sort of a a ceiling for artists um, that writers don't have to have to face. Like there's, um, and th that really doesn't have anything to do with the writers, um, but rather just the industry, you know. And so, if to to get past that ceiling, I think every artist needs to start writing their own their own stuff eventually. Okay. Well, what, what changes between handling all the aspects of the book yourself and working with others on a project? Oh, doing it by yourself is so much more stressful. I'll tell you that. Like it is, and it's, um, and it's also interesting. Like I, it's brought up a lot of the same feelings I had when I first started um, drawing comics professionally, where um, I'm, I'm in new, new territory for me. And it's, there's a lot of unknowns and, um, and it makes me feel very sort of self-conscious and nervous about it in ways that I haven't felt for a long time. Um, so there's that. And then there's also, you know, I've, doing interviews like this, I'm really uh, have been learning how much I have relied on my collaborators to do a lot of the talking about the books. Sure. Lots yeah. of times, you know, we would do interviews together and I sort of just let them talk about the story and worry about like, oh, what's a spoiler and what's not a spoiler? What, you know, how can you tell people about the story without ruining the story for them? And, and uh, so that's a new thing that I'm having to sort of uh, learn how to do with, with doing this stuff. Yeah, playing the question dance. I ask the questions and then you have to like, cleverly not give anything away right yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. well yeah. I, I love getting a chance to talk about color choices and since you did everything you had kind of complete control over it you know it, much of it has an almost sepia wash to it yellowed like a a very old book you might have found in the attic so talk to me about why you chose to go that direction um you know i i wanted um i wanted this book to feel kind of classy <laughs> which sounds really goofy to say out loud but i want it like i want it to feel like a, 
a story, you know, not like, um, like I don't want it to feel so rooted in reality that um, when the magic happens, it doesn't make any sense. Like I wanted it to feel a little bit dreamy, a little bit like a story, um, like a story that you're being told. Um, and, you know, have a narrator who um, is telling the story. Actually, Lupe is, is the narrator, but she's telling the story from, from the future and remembering all the things that had happened. Um, and so I wanted to just sort of make it, make it feel like that, make it feel like, um, like almost like a memory, you know? So it has, there is a sort of a softer focus to a lot of the stuff than um, in some of my previous work. And it definitely has that um, like sort of vignetted um, sepia feel to a lot of the a lot of the panels. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm kind of always mesmerized by your artwork because my eye keeps expecting that watercolor bleed. You know, once you hit the the gutters, um, but you hit them and you just get sucked right back in. So, what do you mean? <laughs> well. Watercolor, I guess, is, is, is always one. I've always loved watercolor, first of all. Like, it's just absolutely. Into, I wish I could do it. And it, it just, I can't. Um, and I, I came to this realization a long time ago. Um, but I've seen some presentations with watercolor where, you know, it gets the, the whole page. You know, um, you'll have like a splash page in the middle or something like that. And then that kind of bleeds around the gutters and stuff. Um, but what what I really enjoy about this and what keeps me visually engaged um you know especially in this book is i just expect that watercolor bleed you know and then you have these nice crisp white edges and you just keep getting sucked back into the story and you have that sepia tone that we just talked about so i spent much more time absorbing the story through the artwork than i'm accustomed to so oh that's interesting i i don't think i really i really thought of watercolors working like that um because the reason why I, I work in watercolor is um like there's two main reasons like the first reason is because um i hate sitting in front of my computer all day and um and so like i had gotten a, a project a couple years back the um called bad blood and they wanted me to color it and i was like well i'm not gonna sit in front of my computer all day can i do watercolor and they were like we don't care just get it done and so that's sort of how I was able to move into that. And then the second reason is just because I feel like it looks, it, I can make work that feels so much different than most of the stuff that's on the stands. You know, it can really sort of stand out and be have its own, um, you know, I can put my fingerprint on it and it's clearly my stuff. Oh, for sure. It definitely has a very distinct voice. Um, yeah. And, you know, the hand of the maker is there in a way that, uh, like a lot of digital coloring isn't, you know, some, some digital colors can really, you know, put their, their stamp on it. And you can tell that it's a, that they did it with their hands, but um, other ones, it just sort of creates this illusion of like, uh, you know, just made from nothing. You know what I mean? Like, I like it to look like somebody, somebody made it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
Yeah, I mean, so are you, I'm, I'm nerding out here, but are you 100%, you know, on paper, not digital, and then it's scanned? Um, I, I actually pencil digitally nowadays. Okay. Um, so I pencil digitally, and then I print it out, and then, um, and then I ink and watercolor on paper. And then I scan it in and clean up my, my panel borders and stuff, and, and then, then that's how I deliver it to the publisher. Okay, okay. That sounds time-consuming. <laughs> it can be. You know, when I did Harrow County, I was, I think back on doing those, and I cannot believe how fast I was doing those books. Like, because I, I was doing them about an issue every six weeks. And, um, yeah, I don't know how I managed to do that. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Because now I'm about, I'm about two months to, to draw one, one issue. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's some extent you alluded to sort of the artist ceiling. And I think that's part of it is within the, the publishing industry is just, it takes time to make artwork, you know? Yeah, yeah, it really does. And like, because um, I mean, one of the things about being an artist on comics is that you are, you are also a writer. Like, and I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't fully appreciate with, about comics is that, um, you know, even the best uh, comic book writer. In fact, I think almost all of the best comic book writers actually leave a ton of space in their scripts to let the artist do the, a bunch of writing also, because um, there's just no way to visualize in your head all the ways that a you know panel transitions can work and the way to how to frame things and exactly all the cool stuff you have to put in the backgrounds and like how to like build all this stuff so they have to leave that to the to the artist and um i forgot where we were going with that oh no no <laughs> it. so and it's all good it's, it's all interesting so i love i love hearing about the artistic process you know coming from the the space mentally i mean i we've got had this you know the debate is flurry right now on you know comics twitter and stuff this you know, artists, writers is our comics literature. And I kind of like just dispense with all of that because it's all, it all goes into the, the product, right? And, and it all creates this beautiful medium that we love. It's all important, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, but right now, uh, Lonesome Hunters is a four issue miniseries, you know, for this arc. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you want to explore it more if it's successful or do you have more to release from your head? For sure, like yeah, I have um, I have a much larger arc. I mean, this first story arc is sort of um, it's really just about Howard and Lupe and how they met, and that very first adventure that they go on. And um, I definitely have a much larger story to tell about you know the origins of the sword and how Howard got his hands on it and um, and what um, and what Howard and Lupe are going to have to do to um you know keep it safe um that um so yeah but it's all dependent on the sort of the first the first story arc doing well you know knock on wood that's sort of where we where we're at in the industry it seems like where nobody's going to do a long series right off the bat they need to do the a small mini series to see you know gauge interest in it and then and go from there for sure for sure yeah i mean after reading issues one and two i was really honestly surprised by the emotional depth of the story. I mean, that, that sounds negative. I don't mean it to, 
but I expected this monster thing, and it's certainly there. There's plenty of creepy flair um, for people to kind of nerd out with with that. But you know, more of the hook was that relationship between Henry and and, and Lupe, which is this you know great duo, uh, and, and their emotional playing off of each other. That I, I'm invested in those characters, so it was surprising in a, a really nice way. Well, that's fantastic to hear. Like that's um, that's definitely um, where my my sort of heart lies as far as storytelling is trying to um, you know come up with these characters and then just explore you know their their internal lives and stuff. And I that's like what really gets me going. You know, when I was working on BPRD, I used to do um, <laughs> I used to do character like monster designs. Yeah. And the most common note I got back on that was that I made my monsters look too sad. <laughs> and like, and it, it was always just because, you know, most of the monsters in BPRD were like, um, you know, normal animals that then got possessed by, you know, Ogdruham or whatever, and got mutated into these like awful monsters. So um, I was always like, oh, they would be like so sad. They would be in pain. And like, and so I'd make them look like that. And I always got the notes back like, you know, you just make them angry. Just make them mean monsters. Don't make them so sad, Tyler. Well, what's the hardest supernatural critter you've ever had to draw at this point? Ooh, you know, there was a um, there was a monster in BPRD that was a cat monster that um, was designed by um, Raphael Albuquerque, and he had just. It was one of those things where they. They hired him to do a, a variant cover, but he was the first person to draw this monster character. So they like gave him a description and he designed it and drew it. And he just drew it in one, he just had to draw one picture of it. And as soon as I got it and I was like, okay, how do I like turn this cat around to look at it from different angles? Because I guess the thing with the thing with this cat was that its eyes had shifted to one side of its head. Okay. And then like, like basically it's like face was like sort of twisted in a funny way. And it was just like absolutely impossible for me to be like, how do I draw it from any other angle than the one that Raphael drew? Like, <laughs> I just could not imagine it. And I actually like had to take a whole day off and build a little maquette so I could spin it around and look at it and figure out how to draw it. Cause it was like the main monster for a whole like issue and a half. So I had to had to figure that guy out. That was the hardest one to draw, like technically, I guess. Um, do you yeah, often, that's probably the hardest one to draw. Do you often find yourself having to make models for for you know like lighting or you know just for different poses? Um, sometimes, like before I did um, comic books, I was a three D modeler for video games. Okay. Okay. So there's there's been plenty of times when I sort of will struggle with something and um, we'll just sort of like whip up a 3D model that I can sort of spin around or throw a light on and and figure out what what I'm doing that way. Um, yeah. In fact, the issue that I'm drawing right now, I had a a down angle looking down these stairs, and I was just really struggling to figure out the perspective on that. So I just made a you know, spend an hour and build a 3D model of some stairs that I could point a camera down at and see like, oh, okay, now, now I got it. Do you ever have that moment having come from, from that background of doing a lot of 
modeling where you see something in comics and you just want to like bang your head against the wall. So I, I think from, from my perspective, so I used to be a that theatrical lighting designer. So th this is one of my personal beasts with comics is like, I'm always looking for lighting and I'm like, no, this is wrong. So I don't know if there's, I don't know if that really gets me. Like my whole video game experience is one of those things where it's like, when I look at, um, when I see video game art, um, my very first reaction is to feel complete exhaustion. Like when I look at like the new, the new Unreal Engine stuff that they're doing and it looks so, it looks like film, you know, it just looks so gorgeous and so realistic. And I just, it makes me so tired. Like, like that's just so much work that somebody has to do to get to that point. And I mean, people complain about comics being, you know, it takes you two full days to draw a page and then it gets read in like four seconds, you know, right. people complain about that, but like video games and movies are so much worse. Like the amount of just human life that gets spent making that stuff. And then you, it goes by in, you know, half a second is unbelievable. Yeah. I don't think I would be very happy in those, you know, at least, at least with theatrical lighting, I got my dramatic moments where everybody's just like, ah, and you get that moment where everybody, yeah. you know, sort of audibly gasps. So that, well, you got to do, you got to do like the performances, right? You were running the lights during yeah. the plays and stuff like that stuff is, is really fun. Like for a while when I was doing video games, we were doing, um, we did like, I worked at the, in the motion capture department and in the 3d scanning department for a while at Sony. And, um, I always loved those, like setting up all the technical stuff and getting it all ready and then bringing someone in and then having the performance happen and like everyone sort of working together like that, that element of it was really, really fun. Yeah, there's so much, uh, I, I would, I guess, describe it as cloak, like it's just these subtleties to, to lighting, ballet, for instance, um, you may have on a solo moment, 12 to 15 different lights coming from different angles and different <laughs> color temperatures and, and everything. And nobody realizes that, right? It's just, mm -hmm. just to make sure that the silhouette is, is properly, you know, illuminated for, for that moment. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. yeah. That stuff seems really fun. I imagine a lot of that is like all automated in really fun ways nowadays. Like there's gotta be like great computer systems to manage all that stuff nowadays. Yeah, and that was a that was a tough learning curve for years because like right there, uh, you know, probably ninety five to two thousand and five, like we had these monumental leaps in in lighting design, and everything went to LEDs too. Um, so the amount of power, okay, I'm getting in the weeds, but like to to run a, <laughs> run a show like in the early nineties versus you know in the early two thousands, like it was just orders of magnitude of difference, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's got to be moving to LEDs has got to be amazing. Like I remember going to see a play in um, in high school in L.A. And um, there was an earthquake in the middle of the of the performance. And it was so funny because like the actors were like trying to just sort of like keep going through through this earthquake. And then um, as soon as some of the lights fell and, you know, they had their safety cable. So they just like they dropped off their pole and just like you know, dropped and like started swinging and stuff. Then the actors had to break and be like, okay, everyone stay calm. <laughs> just like, Don't run, just be chill for a minute. And uh, yeah, imagine those LEDs have got to be much lighter because seeing those things come down, they're big, 
big heavy lights oh yeah i mean giant back in, things on them and yeah i mean back in the day i remember having to actually cancel like big big shows like big touring shows um when i was the the, the production manager because of the snow load and between the the rigs of the sound the lighting you know everything that was hanging and then you combine that with the amount of snow that might be on the top of a building on any random day and oh, you've got to tell 40,000 people. Yeah, 40,000 people. <laughs> nope, not happening, you know. Yeah. I don't you, miss that stress. Every but, theater's got to have a big flat roof, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's horrifying. Yeah, it was much more of a problem with the arenas when people wanted to do things in the center. Because you have something in the round. I mean, as you can imagine, the roof isn't exactly at its strongest at that oh, yeah. center point. But. Oh, man. Yeah, that stuff sounds like fun. Though. I was in a band, you know, right after high school and doing performances and shows and stuff was always just really fun. I liked, I always liked that. And then something I kind of miss from doing comics is that there's no like performance element to it. You know, you sort of like work all alone all day long and then um, you put it out in the world and then you know, maybe people will tweet nice things at you. That's, that's what you get, you know. Yeah, you, you have to read those reviews of people who don't like it. And you're like, oh, I'll just never read a review again. So. <laughs> I'm pretty good at like um, taking criticism and like ignoring stuff that is bad criticism. But yeah, no, it's it's weird. It's definitely more fun when you can have an audience that might uh, well get well, well you know because audiences are so kind usually anyway like even a bad performance they'll really applaud for it and be like you know wish yeah. you the best <laughs> you know? i showed up good job yay yeah. <laughs> we did it we got to the end everybody yeah yeah, yeah. well and it's interesting too because i've seen some collaborations especially with people who are doing more crowdfunding stuff with a lot of music lately either constructing a soundtrack for it to go along with it or you know, even commissioning, a, you know, a band um, to do a couple of songs. I know um, they're doing that with By the Horns when they when they release some stuff. There's a companion soundtrack to it. So, yeah, we have that for Harrow County. Actually, we have a Harrow County soundtrack. OK, yeah. Yeah. For the listeners, they can uh, download it for free from uh, harrowcounty.bandcamp.com. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. I did not know that. Yeah, that's so, it's so funny. That's one of those things I always like. I'll post on social media about it every couple months. And I'm, I've been doing it for like posting about it for years and everybody is still always just like, I didn't know this existed. That's great. <laughs> it's so funny. It's the nature of the algorithm, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. What gets seen, what doesn't. And none of us know the calculus. So, yeah. And especially if you provide an external link, I think that probably like pushes it way down the algorithm. Yeah. Well, Lonesome Hunters, what else you got simmering right now? Um, we got um, Manor Black. The second story arc for Manor Black is coming out, and that's a collaboration between Cullen Bunn and Brian Hurt and me. Um, and uh, that's in stores right now. Um, the Stone King just start just came out in print, so that's out in stores right now. Um, we got uh, Tales from Harrow County, which is um, Cullen Bunn is writing it, and Emily Schnall is um, drawing it and I'm doing the lettering on that and that's coming out right now. Um, yeah, it just feels like everything that I've worked on in the last couple of years is just coming out <laughs> right this second. It's it's kind of surprising. Press um, time. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of Tyler Crook on the shelves right now. If you want it. You can That's get good. It. Yeah. So where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't remember my Twitter handle. I think it's Mr. Tyler Crook, like yep. Mr. Tyler Crook. And um, I'm on Instagram, Mr. Tyler Crook, but I think it's spelled out on that one. Um, and those are the two like socials that I'm at. Um, but you can always like get a hold of me through my website, uh, MrTylerCrook.com. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much pretty much where I'm at. All right. Well, I hope we've teased enough with the Lonesome Hunters to encourage folks to that are listening in to, to pick it up. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I hope they do. I mean, again, uh, great, you know, the supernatural stuff, the artwork is beautiful, but really the, the emotional depth of the story was what really hooked me in. So thanks. Uh, that really means a lot to me, dude. That's like, um, yeah, that's totally my, my goal is to try to tell these emotional, meaningful stories. Well, Tyler, thanks for joining me today. It's been really fun and, and enlightening. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brian. Nice yeah. to be here. Yeah. Well, this is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.